This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by three wonderful people. Allison Cook, Super Inframan, and 36 Dingo. It is also made possible by all of my Patreons. And if you want to become a patron, www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And tonight I have with me Charles Lear. How are you doing there? Doing very well, Soraya. Pleasure to be here. What part of the country are you in? I am in Queens, New York, right next oh. to the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. Oh, so you're not that far from me. Okay. Yeah. I'm upstate. Yeah, I know. I know. You, you, you and uh, Linda Zimmerman were a bit of my uh, New York connective tissue when I was uh, sheltering out in New Mexico for a year and a half. Ah, okay. All right. Um, so your book is called The Flying Saucer Investigators. Mm-hmm. Nice, simple, to the point. No huge, long subtitle. I'm not used to that. <laughs> uh, and yeah. this this covers up to about 1970, right? Uh, the termination of Project Blue Book. Yeah. yeah. And it, it is, I really enjoyed reading this book. Um, there's some a lot of the stuff I've heard, at least heard of, if not knew a, de- a good deal about. But you uh, you dive in deep, and it looks like you're pulling the original articles and stuff rather than going off what other people have written about it. Yeah, I like to go to uh, first sources as much as I can. So uh, it, when I was, I started off. Uh, I'm still Martin uh, Willis's blogger over at Podcast UFO. I write for him weekly, and you know I would get obsessed over finding these original sources and you know getting to the first source. Uh, and I would, I would in the beginning, I would, I would find myself, you know, spending hours just to get, you know, uh, just to find the source. And uh, over time, I've learned where all the bodies are buried. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, there are archives all over the web. It's awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got uh, uh, archives for the unexplained in uh, Sweden. They've got a lot, all the uh, original APRO bulletins uh, and a lot of other magazines. The, uh, QFOS, uh, Center for UFO Studies, and the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, QFOS and NICAP, both have active websites. Uh, somebody, uh, I know Fran Ridge is keeping the NICAP uh, site, NICAP.org, going. So they've got original case files in there, not all of them, of course. Uh, but uh, And QFOS has a lot of their original case files. And then you find uh, audio, like it's uh, Woodrow Derenberger, uh, the guy who wrote uh, Visitors from Lanulos. Uh, there's original audio of him doing his first interview the uh, the very day after he claimed to have had his experience uh and you know this is in 1966 and it's still out there and yeah there's just stuff all over the web and what i did is you know i i i'm glad i i was forced to uh just use the uh the internet to find this stuff 
because all the I you know I footnote uh, cited all my, all my sources. Yeah, and uh, it also you know it, I'm glad I I was forced to stay on the internet and do it from an armchair because this gives the reader a chance to go look at this stuff themselves and you know go on the same kind of journey I went on if uh, they're so inclined. So you know I was happy about that, uh, but I did get the chance to actually. Uh, Martin introduced me to David Marler, so I got to go to his archives. Uh, he's out in New Mexico, and he's got all the NICAP and QFOS files, as well as a lot of Project Blue Book files. So after the fact, you know, after the book was all all written, I actually managed to get you know look at these things, and they're just awesome. And then I went to the uh, on my way back, I drove back uh, from New Mexico to Queens, and I stopped off at uh, Clarksburg Harrison Public Library and mm-hmm. uh, spoke with David Houchin and was able to look at uh, the uh, Gray Barker uh, collection, uh, wow. which is really cool. I mean, original letters from Albert K. Bender and there's his signature and uh, John Keel and Gray Barker's, uh, you know, uh, all these characters I wrote about, they're, they're, they're their signatures. It made it, you know, much more real and uh i got to hold the uh the the wooden uh lost creek saucer that they had um he parker and mosley uh, had made on a lathe that they used to cast the the ceramic model they hung from a fishing pole in front of a guard from the lost <laughs> creek saucer so that was super cool and then i uh, went to um visited uh Sutton, West Virginia, uh, near Flatwoods, went to the Flatwoods Monster Museum, oh. uh, and went to the Mothman Museum as well in Point Pleasant, and just walked around there, and actually I went into uh, one of the, uh, at the TNT, uh, this is an area where they, uh, for your listeners, this is an area where uh, they made uh, TNT during the war. Yeah. Uh, and they had all these, uh, what they called igloos, these concrete domes that they covered in dirt and grass to hide them from the air, uh, where they stored, stored the munitions and they're all empty. And, um, you know, that, that's where, uh, the, uh, Linda Scarberry, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Stephen Mary Millette first saw the Mothman was in this area around a huge power plant. Uh, that's no longer there, but the ruins of a huge power plant. Uh, but these igloos are. I, I, I when I went to visit this igloo, I walked in and the reverb in there was super cool. Yeah. And I had a digital recorder with me. So and also right outside is uh, was a pond, and so all the bugs and frogs were doing their thing. And I said, this will make a really cool soundscape. So I just hit record, uh, hung out by the pond for a little while and then walked into the igloo. And so that fades out all the, you know, nature noises. And then I'm inside the igloo and, you know, the reverb, just walking on the gravel and splashing the water that was inside there just made a really, really cool soundscape. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally saying I would have done. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, is this your first book? Uh, first book uh, somebody else has published, yes. Oh, I, okay. I self-published a book a, a while back. Uh, um, 
and uh, oh, I sold maybe a couple hundred copies just on my uh, my own. Well, <laughs> I actually set it up at uh, the local liquor store, and I used to live in uh, East Williamsburg. And the local liquor store put it on display, as well as uh, my local bar. So people would buy it in the bar and at the liquor store. Sometimes they huh. would give, give me a check, and then I'd uh, basically you know paid for the whiskey I bought that night. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what was that one about? Uh, I put on a production of uh, the Scottish play um, with my uh, my wife and uh, adopted wife, and uh, which it's a long story by the book, post apocalyptic Macbeth and the girls. Uh, and so yeah, we put it up on a rooftop, and um, uh, basically we had one production. Uh, we were fighting street fairs. It was really brutal. Mm. And, uh, you know, evangelical street fairs and uh, Spanish uh, street fairs, the local Spanish people would set up. So they, they set up a, uh, a PA system right at the uh, right in the street just below our venue, just before we were starting and started blasting this music. <laughs> uh, of so course. Uh, uh, it, uh, one of the uh, peach, uh, the adopted wife. Uh, she, uh, her father was a member of former, uh, renowned motorcycle club that has, uh, so they were making a run and she gave him a phone call and they stopped by and, uh, uh, politely asked them to, to keep the noise down until we, uh, were done our play. And, uh, they soon, you know, I see peach on the phone and then, uh, uh, the noise drops. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I guess it worked. And uh, yeah, I was like, you know, I got to write a book about this. So, you know, the book's about producing uh, Shakespeare and a lot of um, the ins and outs of, uh, you know, how Shakespeare works. And also a lot about the, uh, the bohemian lifestyle and uh, just the all the changes I saw in Williamsburg. Because uh, I was hanging at the, uh, what's pretty much the last punk rock bar in New York City was uh, Sweetwater Tavern on North Six in uh, Williamsburg, and it was still a really industrial area at the time I was hanging out there, and uh, you know there was still a, a working uh, meat processing plant right down the street, and so you know just the uh, Williamsburg was super cool uh, back then. I mean that there was a uh, like a diner there uh every wednesday uh they served north italian food and every wednesday it was free uh just oh. for all the starving artists living around that's cool uh yeah so just you know all that kind of so it, you know it's a combination uh history uh lessons on shakespeare and uh you know uh, my life with uh cory and peach um but it's it's probably pretty i haven't read it in years and i'm sure it's got a lot of problems because i didn't know my uh, an independent from a dependent clause and things like mm. you know arcane knowledge like you know nouns verbs pronouns object subject so i you know <laughs> i did the best i could but uh uh so you know with, with that caveat in mind uh, if anybody's interested it, it's still out there on amazon nice okay well this one's very well written 
I, I thank you. I, I do grammar exercises every day now. <laughs> it's, uh, not only is it well written, it's an easy read, and it's, it's uh, what three hundred pages. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of those things where I, I didn't feel like oh, I've had enough of this. I'll come back to it. It was something I, I wanted to read as much of as I could in each sitting. Uh, wow, that's quite a compliment. Thank you. You start with Shaver and Palmer, but I want to skip over that for now because I think a lot of people know about that. But one of the things I want to talk about is, uh, you know, I mean, obviously Kenneth Arnold's kind of, you know, the the first flying saucer guy. Mm-hmm. And the funny, the thing I always find so amusing about this is that he never said they looked like saucers. Right. And so the whole flying saucer thing right from the start was a misquote. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that's somehow apt to the whole field as, as a whole. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, there. Yeah, they were quite, and, and, and mostly in the press, they were calling them flying discs. And I actually just wrote a blog last week. Uh, it didn't matter if it looked like a disc or not. People were, you know, finding radar targets on their f- farms and, uh, you know, like one's a six-pointed star. <laughs> Essentially, it looked like a six-pointed star covered in foil, and then they call it a flying disc. Right. So, and actually, that that kind of uh, uh, informs the the Roswell story as well. You know, it didn't matter that what they, you know, if you read the July 9th um, uh, Roswell Daily Record. Brazel describes it, and he describes you know rubber foil sticks yeah. and tape with uh, colored flowers on it, and uh, nothing to do with the disc, whatever. Yet the you know the day before they announced they recovered a flying disc. Yeah, but yeah, so <laughs> it, it, by any other name. <laughs> <laughs> and and you you talk about him um uh the the next case that he investigated which I've forgotten the name of I, w- I always want to say it's Shag Harbor but it's not Maury Island Maury Island that's it uh, but on the way you said that he stopped uh, for a fuel stop in La Grande Oregon mm-hmm. and he had a sighting yeah yeah just before he landed he he saw something he, he said could be a flock of ducks but I think they moved way too fast uh. And yeah, when he landed, he um, he asked if anybody else had seen uh, seen what he saw, and there was a, a passenger plane and a pilot and passengers. Nobody could corroborate his sighting. So after that, he was determined to. He he had a camera with him everywhere. Uh, so yeah, and he filmed and, that, right? He be what in the book? It says he filmed it. No, he didn't film that. Oh. Because it said he had a movie camera with him, he captured the objects on film. Oh, he did. Okay, <laughs> it's been a while since I read the book. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. But I, I, as to where that footage exists, uh, I yeah. have no idea. What was really cool is he took footage of uh, two of the the principal quote unquote witnesses uh, to the Maury Island. Uh, uh, donut-shaped saucers that they reported. Uh, he wrote that he took footage of Harold Dahl and uh, Fred Chrisman, um, and uh, that would be just awesome to find. Uh, but So I don't know if that exists somewhere, but that if that's out there, that would be just really amazing. Um, and and those, the description of what he saw there was 20 to 25 brass-colored objects that looked like ducks. Okay, yeah. And that's that's again that's interesting to me because it doesn't fit the flying saucer type of thing, 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, when he got there up to Maury Island, uh, Dahl made some comments to him that seemed like he didn't want to really be involved with this. Right. <laughs> yeah, that Dahl was uh, pretty reluctant the whole way through. He advised uh, Arnold to go home. He said, you don't want to get involved in this. It's nothing but trouble. Uh, he claimed, uh, you know, that bad things would happen to him and his family, that he lost a whole uh, load of uh, salvaged logs. Um, he and... Uh, Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman uh, basically uh, put themselves forward as being harbor patrol, but they they were really uh, running a uh, salvage operation up there in Tacoma, Washington. There's a lot of logging, and uh, you know they float them on the river, and a lot of times they get loose. So these guys would go out and salvage them and make deals and sell them in town. Hmm. The uh, and Chrisman was also involved with with Shaver and Palmer. <laughs> yeah, Chrisman's just amazing character. He, uh, yeah, he wrote uh, in uh, in amazing stories. Uh, I think the Palmer started the whole Shaver mystery thing going around 1944. Well, he he got a letter from uh, Rich, a guy named Richard Shaver, um, claiming to, that uh, he had discovered this uh, arcane alphabet called Mantong, and uh, that. Basically, if you took the Roman alphabet and the, the Latin alphabet, and there were letter, there were words that went next to every letter. Uh, so, at the you know D is Darrow for detrimental robot, I right, believe. Right. Uh, yeah. So basically, you know, uh, one of the editors at um, Amazing Stories saw this letter and threw it in the trash and. Palmer fished it out, and legend goes that he uh, there's a that he said uh, you call yourself an editor, and he you know he read it and published it, and uh, challenged his readers to come up with uh, you know to try this for themselves. And of course, there are readers who found stuff, uh, you know, uh, you know they stuff that made sense to them. So, right. Uh, and then uh, Shaver wrote him this sprawling you know i think it's like twenty thousand word letter um all about um uh, essentially boiling the shaver mystery down uh there were these degenerate uh creatures called darrows detrimental robots that lived inside the earth and uh controlled us uh shot mind-controlling rays up at us here on uh, the surface. Yeah. Uh, there were also taros who were not degenerated because they protected themselves. Um, essentially, they, they were forced underground because this race of beings uh, found the sun to be uh, super damaging to them. And um, uh, so they went underground, but they had these devices um, that if they didn't have proper shielding, they would uh, degenerate. It caused the people around them to g- degenerate. So the detrimental robots were the degenerates. <laughs> um, but and uh, you know it, it's it's uh, essentially uh, Palmer s- took this letter. It 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 didn't have any real story protagonist or you know anything a good story should have. So Palmer took this and edited it. For the magazine, uh, and uh, turned it into a, a space opera, basically, yeah. and the readers ate it up. And then, f- so from then on in, I think up until 1948, there was a Shaver mystery uh, in almost every 
um, edition of the magazine, and you know, Shaver was almost almost uh, definitely a paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, Palmer claimed in a uh, in a speech at a science fiction convention that he uh, was actually told uh, by people, I think, in uh, Ypsilanti State Hospital, uh, where uh, Shaver was said to have stayed. Uh, been committed and uh, absolutely confirmed that he was a paranoid schizophrenic. Mm. But Palmer, you know, gave him a place to put his creative energies and Shaver just wrote and wrote and wrote and worked on becoming a better writer. They uh, established a, a deep friendship uh, that lasted to the end of their days. Uh, that's super touching. But Long story short, back to Fred Christman. Fred Christman wrote a letter uh, to Amazing Stories saying that he and a Buddy were fighting in Burma, were inside a cave, and they had a, uh, a battle with Darrow's, and his buddy took a got a dime-sized hole in his uh, hand from a, a Darrow ray gun. <laughs> so the, Fred Christman pops up. Really early, I think that was maybe 19, uh, could have been 44, 45, somewhere around then. Uh, but then Chrisman shows up again uh, with the Maury Island thing. Yeah. Uh, so I, he and Dahl uh, told Palmer they had some kind of strange material they recovered on uh, Maury Island. And Palmer said, uh, if you tell me it's from a flying saucer, I'll be interested. Oh, yeah, it's from a flying saucer. <laughs> so <laughs> he contacted Arnold and sent Arnold off, you know, uh, asked if Arnold would be willing because Arnold lived in uh, Oregon. So he's close, fairly close. Yeah. Asked if uh, Arnold would be willing to travel to Tacoma, Washington and talk to these two guys. And he agreed and Palmer wired him $200 and I, you know, I wrote in the book that uh, Arnold became the first privately funded flying saucer investigator. And so, you know, he, he, he was in over his head. He, you know, he didn't some, he believed them some days, some days he didn't. He thought he was being played and all kinds of weird stuff happened. He called in his, uh, Buddy, uh, R.L. Smith, I think, uh, I, they called him Big Smith. He was a large guy and a, a pilot for a commercial airline. And he called uh, Big Smith, he had had a sighting himself. So he called him and said, you know, can you come help me with this? Because he thought uh, uh, Big Smithy would be, uh, you know, happy to help confirm his own sighting. So he yeah. came and uh, together, you know, they... Uh, Inter, you know, the re-interviewed and uh, both Chrisman and Dahl. Uh, and then, you know, uh, they got a call that somebody from a newspaper uh, editor that, or, or a newspaper reporter, that somebody had been calling him and relating conversations that Smithy and uh, Arnold were having with uh, Chrisman and Dahl uh, almost verbatim. So they yeah. freaked out, thought they were bugged, and you know, uh, and so Arnold's initial sighting, uh, he was visited by um, 
Davidson and Brown uh, don't have their first names on hand. You know, I should open this damn book and actually have a <laughs> reference here. Uh, but uh, they uh, they told him when they were looking into his original report, uh, June twenty fourth, nineteen forty seven, that um, you know if he ever needed a you know if he ever needed them to you know, needed any help to give him a call. And he did. And they showed up and uh, they weren't impressed. Uh, but what happened is actually not really funny. Uh, they, as they, they weren't impressed. They pretty much convinced it was a hoax. But Chrisman, uh, you know, said, well, look, let me get you some of the material. And he ran back to his place, and he came back with, uh, he put a bunch of essentially what were probably lava lava rocks, yeah, uh, probably basalt. And he uh, came back with, a, uh, he put it all in a uh, cornflakes box and handed it to Davidson and Brown, and they got on board their plane. They had to go back. It was really late, and Arnold and... Uh, Smithy uh, tried to convince them to stay overnight, and they said no. Uh, they, the Army Air Forces, had just turned into the Air Force as we know it now, and they had to go back for Air Force Day, the celebration of that uh, event. And he, uh, their plane crashed, yeah, because, and they evacuated. And, you know, they got everybody out. Who and then they both went down with the plane. Yeah. So and that plane's never been found, if I remember right. I think they did find uh, pieces of it. I think that was fairly recently. There's a whole website um, devoted, like set up like a museum. I think they actually have a museum with some of this stuff. Mm. Um, and I think they did find some wreckage, but um, it seems that Chrisman called up the newspaper and said. He had inside information about this, and he gave uh, them uh, Brown and Davidson's name. And you know, then when the military announced, and that was in fact their names, uh, the newspaper thought there was something to this. And right. Printed that a plane went down with uh, material from a flying saucer. So. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, so Arnold uh, basically left with his tail between his legs. He, he was like, uh, th all this really messed him up. Um, yeah, well, it, it sounds like it was a hoax created by Chrisman that Dahl really didn't want to go along with, but did anyway. Yeah, I, well, there's, uh, uh, in, there's there are FBI files on this whole thing. Uh, they, they came and investigated uh, basically because of um, Davidson and Brown's death. Uh, looking if there was any mm. criminal culpability. So there's a whole file generated by this and you can find it on the, uh, the FBI has their own, uh, a website called the vault, uh, very similar to, uh, John Greenwald's, uh, black vault, um, probably in, uh, uh, reaction to the, uh, copious, uh, FOIA requests they had been receiving. So they have a whole section devoted to UFOs and this is in there. Hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that there's a, a stringer, uh, a freelance reporter, uh, is quoted as saying that when he visited Harold Dahl, his wife was super upset and 
screaming at doll basically you know to quit the nonsense and come clean so uh doll told him it was a hoax and uh this reporter said that he tried to uh get in touch with arnold and 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 the paper he was also writing for uh his local paper uh as well and you know he, he alerted the paper that you know these guys are nuts this is totally a hoax uh but the, apparently the message never got through yeah but uh but then chrisman shows up again uh at the uh, the clay shaw trial <laughs> run by jim uh, uh garrison covering the john f kennedy assassination um and some anonymous person <laughs> wrote that this guy uh fred chrisman uh was an associate uh and uh, the knew something uh so he was subpoenaed and actually testified at the clay shaw trial wow and he's also people investigate jfk investigators have uh, identified him as uh, one of the three tramps who were uh, arrested that uh, the day of the assassination oh that's uh, right yeah yeah so, yeah uh, chrisman's quite a character <laughs> He definitely seems to put himself in the middle of this stuff, whether it's whether it's a hoax or, or not. I mean, it seems like that stuff was a hoax. Obviously, JFK wasn't. Yeah, but it seems like he just likes to be in the middle of a mystery. Yeah, or liked yeah. to be in the middle of a mystery. So, and and you mentioned on there, and this is something else I think is lost on people that Arnold and Smith didn't think whatever this phenomena was uh, was extraterrestrial. Yeah, yeah, that's I, I, Arnold never mentioned that, but it, later. Uh, people started. Uh, he, he started saying that the people were coming up to him in the streets, you know, saying that he, you know, I, you're the guy that sees aliens, and you know, it, it was bothering the hell out of him. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, initially, uh, Arnold thought that his sighting was uh, military. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Big Smith Smithy's name is uh, Captain E.J. Smith. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, and uh and and doll disappeared too that seemed like to be one of the weirder things in that story yeah well his son uh, the the story that doll said that the story goes that harold doll was out with his crew and they saw six donut shaped objects craft one of which seemed to be having trouble and the other five were around it and then this craft dumped all this material uh, first, uh, dark, hot, and uh, caused steam when it hit the water. And then a bunch of light material they described as being like uh, newspapers. And uh, the story, as told by Dahl, was that uh, this stuff broke his son's arm and killed his dog. Uh, his son came forward later. Uh, and said that uh, this never happened. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but uh, wasn't there an incident where Arnold went to back to Dahl's house and the house was abandoned and didn't look like there had been anyone there in years? That that's yeah. See, this story, uh, the the way I, I I looked at it in the book was you know uh, Arnold and wrote about this with the help of um, Ray Palmer. Uh, in um, the coming of the saucers, so he he wrote about the whole thing. So the way I I did it in the book is I I did a summation of uh, Arnold's piece about 
this whole Maury Island incident, uh, and then compared it to, uh, he wrote an uh, original report uh, for Fate magazine, the very first issue of Fate, that also had the story of his uh, June 24th sighting. Uh, so he wrote about this there, uh, which was much closer to the event. Coming of the Saucer was published years later, uh, maybe 1956, um, maybe earlier than that. Um, but he, uh, and then there's uh, an FBI, the FBI file. So I compared all th three uh, versions of the story to, to basically, you know, point out well, this, you know, this differs here, this differs there, this differs there. Yeah, and. You know that that whole idea of the the house being abandoned um, seems to have been a uh, a machin an invention of uh, a very creative editor. <laughs> ah, and uh, there's another thing uh, where Arnold is uh, heading home. He lands for fuel, and then he goes to take off, and the the plane conks out. Right, and he has to do an emergency landing, uh, and he. You know, he bent up his wheels and everything, and he went to see what was wrong, you know, wh what had happened. And he saw his fuel, uh, uh, the, the petcock on his uh, uh, fuel line had been turned off. And he said, nah, I was the only person in, in the book. It says, uh, I was the only person that could have done it. Uh, you know, and hinted at uh, being, uh, having some mind control. Right. So there's shave, there's, there's, you know, there's a shade of the uh, shaver mystery right there. So that really points to Palmer. Uh, um, let's talk about Jim Mosley. He he runs through this whole book. Yeah. Well, he had a, a long, fruitful, uh, 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 humorous life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he uh, died in 2012. And uh, he started this group called uh, Saucers. Uh, they they called it saucers first, uh, and then came up with the name afterwards. Uh, what what this acronym could stand for afterwards? Mm. Uh, so so uh, society. Oh boy, um, uh, I'll 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 yep. get that later. Yeah, uh, it, has, so, it has to be Ariel S A. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he put out uh, his first was Nexus, uh, then Saucer News. Uh, and then it went. Through, uh, his publication went through a, uh, a variety of names, and then ended up as Saucer Smear, that he, which he put out until his death. Um, so, uh, Saucers was, I think, pretty much the uh, the longest running uh, private UFO group there ever was. Um, but um, yeah, so he had a, he had a, he had a long career. And he had a really good sense of humor about all this stuff. Like he didn't take it super seriously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he he's been uh, referred to as the the jester of ufology. And um, uh, yeah, like the, he and uh, uh, he and Gray Barker used to be drinking buddies, and they, they you know he would visit him down in uh, Clarksburg, West Virginia, and you know so they they got drunk and pulled a couple of. Franks, uh, the the most famous one being the R.L. Straith letter. Uh, what happened there was a friend of Barker's father worked for the State Department and got a hold of a bunch of State Department stationery. So 
Mosley and Barker while drinking uh, wrote a whole bunch of letters and sent them out to various UFO organizations. Uh, one letter said uh, recommended that APRO shut down because there was a uh, a crackdown by the Postal Service coming their way. And uh, he wrote to uh, civilian saucer uh, investigators that um, they'd been infiltrated uh, but the famous one is uh, one signed R.L. Straith that he sent to uh, George Adamski, praising him for his work and <laughs> saying that, you know, we at the State Department support your work. We can't publicly, you know, uh, we can't publicly support you. We just wanted to know that we support your work. So Adamski went out and, uh, you know, and his followers immediately held this letter up as uh uh, confirmation uh, of the truth of Adamski's claims, and this caused a ruckus. You know, people were trying to. Uh, the other investigators, like APRO, were trying to figure out who sent out these letters, and you get an <laughs> idea that they pretty much uh, figured out it was Jim Mosley, and uh, uh, basically, whoever he is, that boy is sick. <laughs> In the uh, APRO bulletin, uh, but then later uh, they did this thing called the Lost Creek Saucer. <laughs> which uh, they uh, created a um, uh, a little George Adamski style scout craft. Uh, had somebody turn it on a lathe and then use that as uh, to cast a little ceramic saucer that they put on the end of a fishing line, held out in front of a car and filmed. Uh, and this footage became known as the Lost Creek Saucer. Mosley was the go-to guy for a while uh, as a lecturer. Um, because uh, there was a uh, a service uh, that would get speakers, and say I think it was uh, the a Detroit Electricians Union asked um, you know asked that they were looking for Donald Kehoe. Donald Kehoe was way too expensive, uh, so they they asked Jim Mosley, and Jim Mosley said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll do it." So he went out. He it, it went over really well, and. Mosley was off to the races. He became the go-to guy uh, for people looking for speakers on UFOs. Um, and he would bring this footage along with him. <laughs> uh, and, he, and, but, uh, they, uh, and he used that footage for years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they did finally come clean about that. He also, he finally, he and Barker had a pact about the R.L. Straith letter. And uh, that, you know, whoever died first would... Uh, Come clean. I mean, you know, whoever died first, the other one would right. come clean. Uh, and Barker died in 1988, I believe, and Mosley promptly published uh, his confession. <laughs> oh, um, you, you, you talk about the Aztec crash in here. What's interesting is you don't talk about Roswell because Roswell was just kind of a blip in that yeah, time yeah. period. It didn't get any real, real ground. Yeah, and the you know the 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 serious private investigators such as APRO and NICAP weren't you know they didn't get underway until the fifties, so you know there were no private investigators to really look into this and you know try and uh, uh, you know get some facts. Uh, so yeah, it just it essentially was a, a, a non-event as far as the investigators at that time were concerned. So that's the main reason I don't. Yeah. Put it in my yeah. book. It wasn't until Stanton Friedman in what, like the late 70s, early 80s, 
that you start hearing about Roswell, but people think, oh yeah, Roswell's been a, you know, a thing throughout UFO history. And it's like, it really hasn't. Yeah. And what's funny though, speaking of Friedman is, uh, mostly, you know, wrote about his, uh, adventures in a book, uh, 2002, I think, um, uh, shockingly close to the truth confessions of a grave robbing ufologist. Yeah. And in the book he wrote that, you know, in the, at the height of his, uh, speaking career, uh, Stan Friedman started undermining him and underbidding him and mm. saying, you don't want Mosley, you want me. So uh, <laughs> Mosley claims that Friedman uh, basically scuttled him. Nice. Um, so talk about the Aztec crash a little. I mean, this is pretty much considered a hoax as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that a, uh, a speaker in uh, Denver, Colorado, uh, he was this mystery speaker uh was uh it was arranged for him to speak for students of a critical uh who were working on uh critical thinking uh as part of their classwork uh and turned out that this guy was going to be talking about flying saucers and they had to book a bigger hall uh so this mystery speaker spoke about you uh flying saucer crashes I think three in America and one in Africa, and the 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 hunt was on to who this mystery speaker was, and then they got a name, Silas P. Newton, and this guy Frank Scully, who wrote for Variety magazine, uh, was acquainted with Silas P. Newton, so he got in touch with him, and then got this story about this saucer crash in Aztec, New Mexico. Uh, and Silas P. Newton claimed to have gotten it from a character described. Scully wrote a book about this. He wrote, he wrote, a, I think a couple of articles and then a book, uh, the book is, uh, behind the flying saucers. Mm -hmm. And, he, um, in th this other character that, uh, Newton claims to have gotten the, the information from was a guy that Scully identifies as the mysterious Dr. G. Um, and so the, the story is that um, Dr. G was examining the saucers. Uh, <laughs> uh, the way uh, Scully describes the, the event in the book is this thing, you know, crashed on a mesa in Aztec, New Mexico, and there's a, a running track there now uh, with a plaque, uh, 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 commemorating the uh, crash, and uh, it describes the saucer as being 99 feet in diameter, and all mm. dimensions of the saucer are divisible by nine. <laughs> he describes of course. bombarding it, <laughs> his words, with Geiger counters <laughs> to uh, make sure it was safe. In order to open it, they, they saw a little hole. They poked a stick through a hole and pushed the button, and the door magically opened. <laughs> he described there being 16 bodies inside, I think between four and five feet tall, uh, dressed in the uh, style of the 1890s, <laughs> brass-buttoned uniforms. And their skin was described as, uh, some of their skin was described as being chocolate brown, uh, burned by uh, contact with our atmosphere. Mm. Uh, so that was the story as told to Scully and as Scully told it in, um, his book, uh, 
so this guy jp khan a reporter um looked into this and he wrote an article for true magazine and what uh khan did was you know he got in touch with scully talked to scully said well can you know you uh have arranged for me to meet uh mr newton and eventually uh you know he was reluctant at first eventually he got to meet him and talk to him and newton passed himself off as a a, a big wheel in the oil industry uh, he had uh uh uh, and and he would drive around in brand new Cadillacs, stay in very expensive hotels to support this. And Khan looked into it, found he had did have some small offices in Denver, really small. Uh, you know, two offices and one uh, desk for a secretary in between them. And he looked more into Newton's story, and Newton claimed to have rediscovered the Rangeley oil field which was under the control of a subsidiary of Standard Oil. Khan went out there and talked to some people out there, and they're basically, you know, this guy's full of it, um, <laughs> and said that he and this other guy run a what's called a doodlebug operation, where they claim to have a device that can find oil. In, in their case, they claimed it was through, uh, they would find the magnetic waves coming from the oil, uh, uh, your students of science can probably see through that one. <laughs> and uh, also claimed that uh, this thing had been uh, made with technology from a flying saucer. And as Newton's name was out there after Scully's book, that's that's what he was peddling. And then they would sell uh, prospect, you know, they would sell worthless oil leases. Uh and then another thing that Newton was doing is he was showing around this uh, metal discs that he said claimed to have come from one of the uh, saucers, actually a, a scout craft. Mm. And Khan had duplicate of one of these discs made and managed to switch it uh, for the one Silas was holding up. Silas <laughs> uh, w was making claims that, you know, this thing wouldn't melt it like, you know, super high temperatures yeah. and all that uh con had it tested and by god it was cookware aluminum that melted at the temperature cookware <laughs> aluminum should melt it uh so and he also tracked down who this mr dr g could be and he came up with this guy leo gabauer so he was pretty sure it was uh, leo gabauer uh which leo gabauer was the guy uh who was working the uh, doodlebug operation with newton uh, so uh, after khan's article were pu was published uh khan started looking for people who had been taken by these two guys and uh, uh he found one person willing to prosecute and the you know it uh, time was of the essence because the statute of limitations was running out so this guy was taken for over three hundred thousand dollars in nineteen, you know, fifties, you know, and yeah, it's a lot of money back then. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he, they, they were Newton and Gebauer were brought to t trial in Denver um, and found guilty. And what was funny is Jim Jim Mosley was actually out there at the time looking into this story, uh, and he managed to interview. 
uh, Newton at the time as well. And he, too, thought that this was all a hoax. He said, yeah, he believed that Newton was a con man and a very good one at that. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were convicted and ordered to pay restitution uh, if they wanted to stay out of jail. <laughs> the first thing Newton did was go out and sell $18,000 of worth this uranium stock. <laughs> <laughs> but so what keeps one thing that really keeps this tale going is that um, – Newton avoided jail. Yeah. Just that, which is weird. <laughs> so, uh, obviously a yes. good con man. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. So, so this story is still a matter of contention to this day. And that's the thing. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, there were plenty of good cases of weird UFO settings and stuff, but the ones you see come up the most are the ones like Maury Island and the Aztec crash, stuff like that, that, you know, even Roswell, that's been thoroughly, you know, fairly debunked. And you don't see mention of so many of these good cases. Right. Which I, you know, I, I have, there are some awesome cases that, I, you know, I put into, into the book just because the, you know, the investigators were looking at them, but they're, they're it just leaves you going, you know, what in the world? Um, you know, just really convincing testimony and uh, uh, police reports. Th those are, you know, really get me. I mean, th th this is actually a police report yeah, uh, yeah, by a cop. And, yeah, there are so many really good convincing cases out there that uh, it's a shame that, you know, they, they say, you know, trying to find the signal for the noise. And it's just a shame there's all this noise out there. And, and, and it's a lot... I, one of the questions I wrote down is, what do you make of the whole mess of UFO research and all the drama involved? And I, I guess you sort of answered that in a sense. It yeah. just creates a lot of noise. Okay, I had to find this. Okay, here it is. Saucers. The Saucer and Unexplained Celestial Events Research Society. Ah. Good. You got that out. <laughs> all right. Yes. So. And uh, Flatwoods is another one. What uh, The thing I guess I, I, I've overlooked about Flatwoods is that there were a lot of fireballs seen right before this encounter. Yeah, yeah. There were, they, they, were, they were tracked uh, over a bunch of states. Um, and yeah, and Ivan T. Sanderson was uh, one of the investigators. He was a Cambridge-educated naturalist. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that that's a, a, an interesting story. One of the things... I like about uh, one of the things that flummoxed me about it. Uh, I wrote it as a blog first. Uh, was you know what happened? Uh, what there are three different versions of what happened to the dog that was with the witnesses when they saw it. Yeah. Um, and you know this, it's described as running with its tail between its legs. You know, back uh, to the house. Uh, it one version it, it vomited and. Uh, uh, crawled under the house and stayed there. And another version, it dies. <laughs> you know, another version is just you know sick. Um, so there are three different versions of what happened to the dog. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like a, a deep. I mean, I don't know. Maybe people just start exaggerating the situation over time. Yeah, uh, but you know, when you go back to the first sources, that's where you get the the you, you get the closest to the story. Yeah. So, you know, the, the newspaper reports and uh, Barker's account, Gray um, Barker was a serious researcher at that point. He's, uh, he was uh, contracted by Fate Magazine uh, 
to write an article about the case. Uh, said I think uh, two to three thousand words. Don't speculate. Um, and uh, so that first article he wrote, he, you know, he went out there with a tape recorder. He interviewed the witnesses. Um, some of the key witnesses uh, were in New York doing a talk show at the time. Uh, but, you know, the he was most impressed by a young kid named uh, Neil Nunley. I think he might have been all of 11 years old at the time. A uh, 14-year-old, yeah. And uh, so he was super impressed by him. And so, you know, you you, you get Neil Nunley's transcript. You get all the first wit hand witness accounts. Uh as close to the event as possible and you get an idea of what the real story is and it's still like really intriguing uh people have since claimed that you know that what they saw was an owl right uh but the problem is is that they saw it under a tree branch instead yeah. of sitting on a tree branch uh and there's a picture of a barker made a composite picture of the flatwoods monster under the the very tree that they claim to have seen this thing and uh you know the, the the tree branch is way up there so if they saw an owl it would have been the creature would have been that much taller right but a, a thing that gets lost in this story too is that uh they also claim to have seen this huge uh half lit half dome the size of a house um and that's you know what uh, gets lost in this tale uh, one of the, the cool things was is that, um, you know, uh, the Air Force was contacted about this. They said, well, did they see anything in the air? Uh, no. Well, then it's an Army problem. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, And it seems like something definitely did happen. It's just a matter of what. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it does. I, I think so anyway. But um, <laughs> the the story has uh, taken on uh, amazing uh, proportions, especially with uh, uh, the 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 world's most thorough researcher, <laughs> self proclaimed on this subject, uh, has turned this story into uh, just an amazing epic, a very beautiful book with awesome pictures. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm not gonna mention his name or rag on him but uh <laughs> yeah the story has uh, become very convoluted through the years so you know that's another reason i, I really like to go to original sources yeah you get an yeah. idea and, and it's still fascinating you well, know you don't need all that embellishment to make it fascinating in my eyes yeah me either uh and sometimes it's more fascinating when they don't embellish because they're embellishing it almost to make it more like what people expect yeah, yeah, to, to make it uh, fit in with the narrative. As yeah. Um, the thing about, and I know people have speculated that that might have been a PSYOP, uh, but what interests me about that is if it was a PSYOP, did they know these fireballs were coming? Right. You know, like, did we have that type of predictive ability back then? You know, if it, if this was like a no meteor shower, then maybe that, you know, the PSYOP idea makes sense, but what are the chances they were doing a PSYOP right as, you know, these fireballs were coming down? Right, right. And, you know, the, the kids describe this fireball as stopping and then descending. So, yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard to figure out case to, to, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And I've always liked Ivan Sanderson. Um, 
Although, yeah, but his speculation was uh, on uh, Long John Nebel's show was really fun. <laughs> Basically, the the air over West Virginia was so polluted that these saucers, uh, one of the saucers, uh, couldn't function properly and crashed. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a Cambridge educated naturalist speculating. <laughs> I, 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 well, he's one of the few people that's written about uh, underwater UFOs. Yeah, I think he was the first. Yes. Yeah. Oh, he's definitely yeah. the first, but it's still not a, not something you hear a lot about. Yeah. And yeah, and uh, uh, he came up with the uh, the name cryptozoology. Yeah. Uh, as well. Uh, so yeah, he was big on cryptids. Did did uh, you say someone else had had used the term before that, but it caught on with Ivan? Uh, yeah, I think I, I think it was somebody thought that they had coined it, and then. Did some research and found out that he had used it first. Ah, okay. Okay, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, uh, you also talk about Rupelt here and uh, how he came up with the term UFO. UFO. UFO, yes. That's a, and uh, Keel, that's how Keel pronounced it, UFO. Hmm. So everybody's been saying it wrong until they say it, ufologist. <laughs> Actually, Fair. this came out of my mouth last night. It was pretty funny. Uh, uh, the host was asking me, um, you know, what I thought about the term UAP. And I said, well, put ologist at the end of it. Doesn't work. <laughs> you apologist. And I, for one, am not a you apologist. That's, <laughs> so, that, that's, that's sort right. of accurate, though, for, for the, the, the current state of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Hmm. But I, I, I like UFO. I think that it's fun to say it that way. <laughs> I don't know. I still like UFO. Yeah, I, well, I I write for podcast UFO, so. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah, I mean, and ufologist definitely is how it goes. Yeah. Um, but that that you know that that term wasn't there initially. It was created you know later on. It was just saucers prior to that. Yeah, yeah. So that that was uh, saucers or discs. Yeah. So that was uh, Rupelt's doing. And uh, let's talk a little bit about this flap we had in 1952. I'm always interested in flaps because, to me, like what what what's the cause? Especially when it's in in set locations, like like there's something else going on. To me, it doesn't point to an extraterrestrial origin. It points to an environmental thing that maybe makes certain time periods or locations more accessible to whatever we're dealing with. Mm hmm. Yeah, uh, 1952, uh, things went nuts towards the end of that year. And they, uh, the Project Blue Book started getting all kinds of calls. Um, and they ended up working 14-hour days, seven days a week. And they were flying all over the country in, um, interviewing witnesses and looking into reports. Uh, it was... Um, the numbers, I think they got something like 1,112 reports in a very short period of time, yeah. whereas I think the, the entire uh, number up until that date that they had received was like 740. Uh, that That's Project Sign and Project Grudge combined. Um, so, yeah, I said in the, the month of June, 149 Reports came in by the end of the summer. The incoming message log would show 717 reports. Uh, so yeah, they they got really busy. And then these uh, two weekends in July, uh, beginning July 19th, 
the radar operators are four radars, um, three local and one uh, 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 long range. Um, <clears throat> the long range was at the uh, the the airport, uh, the uh, commercial airport, and uh, the, the the blip showed up on the radar. Uh, in um, restricted airspace, which freaked everybody out. And they called jets in. Uh, jets would show up and the blips would disappear, which yeah. also freaked them out. And there were also visible sightings. Uh, people would say, uh, you know, one radar t tower would, uh, people from one radar tower would call people in another radar tower and say, you know, we're picking this up. You should be able to see it. And sure enough, they did. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it it definitely freaked people out, and, um, and it's, it's so tricksterish too. You know, you you launch to the, the jets, right? they disappear. You take the jets down, they pop back up again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but so, um, nobody thought to call Project Blue Book. <laughs> they found out secondhand about this, uh, and so Rupelt went out and. Uh, Funny thing he writes about in his book, uh, the report on unidentified flying objects, 1956, is that um, he sat the airport in Washington D.C. and overhears a couple people talking about, you know, a, a UFO expert coming in, and he wondered to himself who that UFO expert might be. And he wrote in his book, I, I found out shortly thereafter that it was me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so Rupert's, you know looking to investigate this and he goes to he tries to get a car so he can go out you know to the different uh, radar towers interview witnesses and get the lowdown all this he can't get a car he i think uh, he needed a colonel to <laughs> be able to get him a car and he couldn't find a colonel uh, so they wouldn't give him a car and it was suggested that well you know you take you can take your stipend and take buses he's like there's no or cabs he's like uh, there's no way i can't afford the cabs and the buses would just take way too long uh so and he was also told oh yeah and if you don't get your orders changed you're a wall yeah so, <laughs> said, yeah so all of a sudden the uh all the the reports that they were talking about back in dayton the the were really interesting <laughs> became a whole lot more interesting so he bugged out of town uh so yeah so as far as blue book uh being able to do a serious investigation that kind of fell through the cracks right there yeah and you have all this military evidence of it too mm -hmm. which you think would be the ideal situation and they and the, what do they they say weather aversion inversions i think right Temperature inversion, yeah, temperature that was, just, yeah, they they were just kind of, you know, we, we better put a, uh, uh, that, that they decided, uh, they really thought about it, but uh, radar reporters, yeah, the, the, the radar operators afterwards just really uh, came out, you know, who were there said, nah, <laughs> the, the way too experienced to, the, the people who were there were way too experienced to have mistaken uh temperature inversions for for that long a period of time um and al chop uh who was the uh, pentagon spokesman uh for people uh questioning about ufos uh he uh he was in the radar room on the second weekend and uh he was you know uh, mosley actually interviewed him a uh, thing about mosley in his book is well uh, that's a long story mostly 
on the premise that he was writing a book uh, before all the, yeah, after this, um, I think, yeah, in the 1954, made a tour of the country and met everybody who was everybody in ufology. <laughs> and he was just this punk kid of like 20 years old who yeah. dropped out of college. He was a trust fund kid. And uh, so all these people talked to him just on the basis that he was writing a book on UFOs. And he actually got to talk to Rupelt and Al Chop together, uh, probably the only time they'd ever been interviewed together. And he said that uh, Rupelt... Uh, came down more agnostic about uh, flying saucers being from outer space, and uh, Al Chop was uh, pro. Uh, so, hmm. yeah, it, it seems like it was it was very much a divided uh, opinion on where these things were from. Like most most of the investigators, yeah, obviously thought something was going on, but it's, it wasn't such a clear cut. Oh, these are these are extraterrestrial, as it. Is kind of it's kind of sold that way when you look at at so many accounts of this stuff. Well, Donald Donald Kehoe right from the get go, you know, the first book on flying saucers, flying, uh, 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 well, no, that's his second book, uh, flying saucers from outer space. Okay, so this is before he's uh, in NICAP. So this is Donald Kehoe straight out saying flying sa flying saucers from outer space. Uh, so, you know, you want to talk about confirmational bias when he yeah. starts this uh, organization based on scientific, uh, you know, uh, looking at the phenomena with scientific discipline. <laughs> so, um, and the funny thing about Kehoe is, you know, Kehoe, yeah, flying saucers from outer space, but Kehoe didn't want to deal with uh, the, the, the creatures that might have been driving them. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a really funny thing that comes up. Uh, that I, I, I emphasize that in the book. You have the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, German Carl Lorenzen's group. Um, they're all they're bring, bring on the humanoids. Hell yeah. You know, as, as long as they didn't talk. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> uh, the contactees were getting a lot of headlines and making the whole thing look really silly. Yeah. And, um, so they, you know, that they were willing to write about humanoid reports, whereas Kehoe was not, and he caught a lot of flack about that. And this actually came to a head in 1961. You want to talk about the uh, Joe Simonton case? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, that to is, me, that's a great case. It's a great case, and but the thing about it is, from uh, my perspective, it's a really fun case that people love to talk about. Uh, I'll sum it up. Uh, this guy, uh, chicken part-time chicken plumber, part-time chicken farmer Joe Simonton, claimed to have seen a flying saucer land in his driveway. A door opened. You know, when he went out, a door opened, and he saw a uh, a humanoid figure, swarthy like an Italian, <laughs> standing there. Uh, it, the creature made a drinking motion and then handed him a vessel and he said oh water uh, uh simonton said to the creature oh water he went out filled it up gave it to the creature uh, and then he saw two other humanoids in there uh that looked like one looked like it was tethered to a control board and one looked like it was tethered to a stove and was cooking something on a griddle and the first creature saw Simonton looking at this and said, oh, here. He didn't say it. He, he grabbed the pancakes and handed four pancakes, <laughs> what looked like pancakes, to Joe Simonton. And then uh, the door closed. 
And then in uh, the account, the craft tilted up and shot off and the backwash bent a tree backwards and the tree sprung back up uh, like a cartoon and wiggled back and forth. Uh, so Simonton goes to his, uh, uh, somebody new, uh, judge Franklin Carter, Franklin Carter ran a flying saucer group and was also a member of NICAP. He tells his story to Carter, get, Carter gets a pancake from him and Carter writes a letter to Kehoe and sends him the pancake and the report. Uh, and then it promptly tells reporters that uh, NICAP is investigating Simonton's story and analyzing the pancake. <laughs> so, um, which uh, they weren't. They were really busy getting uh, a book, uh, mostly by Richard Hall, called UFO e Evidence. I think it's uh, a collection of over 700 reports into the hands of every member of Congress in an effort to get U uh, congressional UFO hearings going. And so they were really busy with that, really serious, and this thing gets dropped in their lap. Um, and meanwhile, uh, Robert Friend, a former Tuskegee Airman, is the um, uh, is running Project Blue Book. And J. Allen Hynek, who's the scientific consultant for Project Blue Book, was really you know, he, he wrote later that he was uh, he thought Friend was probably the best. Uh, head of the project, he said he was really open-minded, uh, and you know, just looked at it uh, in a, from a clear-headed point of view. Um, but uh, he also dealt with it as a nuisance issue as well, which it was for the Air Force. This was a public relations nightmare quite frequently. So he got a uh, friend got wind of this case from uh, somebody from a local Air Force base uh, around Eagle River, Wisconsin, which is where the uh, Simonton lived. And he th called Heineck and said, you need to get down to Eagle River because I think uh, NICAP's uh, going to investigate this and uh, we don't want them accusing us of not looking into this. So down Heineck goes. And Heineck was really impressed by Simonton's integrity uh, uh, his reputation. Uh, among the townspeople, people were saying, if he says he saw it, he saw something. <laughs> so, you know, he, he he believes he saw what he saw. Um, and then Heineck got the pancake analyzed at the Food and Drug Administration. And uh, they it was salt, hydrogenated oil, and buckwheat holes. Um, and I've heard other versions where people leave out the salt part. In the report, the salt is in there. Yeah. Um, they try and link it to, it's been, there's been attempts to link it to fairy lore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, salt is in that, but, you know, the, uh, still flatbreads are a part of uh, fairy lore. But in any case, um, uh, Heineck starts getting hounded by his members. You know, why aren't you looking into this case? And, you know, an APRO is, is looking into the case, and they write about it. And Heineck's just getting slammed, and <laughs> members are leaving. And, the, the, you know, the NICAP was always strapped for cash. Uh, so the Air Force came out smelling like a rose, and Heineck came out, you know, just with egg on his face after this whole event. <laughs> so I, I find that, like, the, one of the most humorous parts of this whole thing. Um, the, the, and, the thing and is... The, 
Right. I'm sorry. The the pancake uh, still exists in uh, a Project Blue Book display put together by friend. Uh, mm. I think at the uh, Air Force Museum in uh, Dayton, right outside the cafeteria. I, and I find it interesting because I feel like if someone was going to make up a UFO encounter, this wouldn't be it. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what impresses most most people about this case. I think I, yeah, I titled that chapter. Uh, who would make up such a story? Yeah. And who would make up such a thing? And and it's it hits that high strangeness sort of thing. It hits the the. I mean, because we we see stuff that seems to come from anomalous stuff, but it's all really normal things. Mm hmm. You know, even yeah, the, actually, that, that's something Keel brings brought up uh, was that you know oftentimes you know that somebody would uh, claim to have been abducted and to see you know bunk beds that could have been made on Earth and right. uh, you know wooden appliances. <laughs> uh, so it's it, that's what to me that argues against the extraterrestrial idea that this this is something else going on that we just don't understand yeah absolutely yeah i like the idea of um of you know a, a consciousness or an extension of our consciousness that uh coexists with us yeah yeah um yeah that was a big ideal idea uh, of keels of course you know that yep um but um Yep. Uh, so Rupelt turns against UFOs at some point. Like he, he was open to it, and then he just decides he's nope. Yeah, the second edition of his book uh, updated. Uh, yeah, he added three chapters where he really um, uh, starts. You know, he, he seems to be coming down on the side against, uh, and emphasizes the silliness of the contactees, the circus around that whole thing, um, and. You know, uh, I, I, in, in one of the r rare moments of speculation on my part, you know, I, I really feel that, uh, I wrote that I, I felt that, uh, he was doing his Air Force buddies a, a favor because they were getting hammered. Uh, and I, so, you know, and he was also confessed to his wife that he, you know, he was, uh, he was disturbed that the, the Air Force was uh, upset by his book. His first edition. So. Ah, okay. Um, let's see. We're almost out of time, but we could probably squeeze something else in here. There's a there's a report you have in here uh, that I found really interesting, and again, does not fit the normal narrative. And I've never heard this report. Um, and I forget what it comes from. I just I copied it, and it said the reports are typical into the bottom of page five, where there's a summation of a story from the Houston Chronicle about a man with a pair of big black wings who flew over, flew over the house of Mrs. Hilda Walker. Coral Lorenzen, uh, oh, I guess that was by Coral Lorenzen. Uh, the Batman was seen to alight in a pecan tree. When Mrs. Walker and two other persons looked, they saw the figure of a man with the wings of a bat. He was dressed in gray or black-fitting tight clothes. After perching in the tree for a minute, the halo surrounding him began to fade, and the strange figure disappeared. Yeah, Barker wrote about that in the uh, Sosarian. I think he uh, okay. summarized it. And that was fascinating to me because, again, it's not a typical UFO encounter. It just disappears. It's like, what? what is what is this that we're dealing with? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the most interesting cases for me were the uh, the ones where the, 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 the saucers start zapping people. Yes. Uh, yeah. You got that kid, Charles. Uh, I think he was eight years old at the time, playing outside his grandmother's laundromat. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this black top-shaped object 
flew over him. It flew at him. He thought it was going to go right through him. Well, wasn't he mimicking it? Uh, he well, he moved to the left. It moved to the left. He moved to the right. It moved to yeah. the right. He moved back again. Yeah. So he said it, it was doing that. Yeah, and then it came right at him. It was like a black top-shaped object about five feet tall. Uh, and then shot flame down over his head, and his hair caught on fire. His grandmother witnessed this, and he came running into her. Uh, she had to put out the fire. He ended up in the hospital for two weeks. His face swelled up to the point where uh, his nose reportedly disappeared. Um, and, you know, his ears were turned inside out. And he itched terribly, but he reported no pain, huh. which is really weird. Yeah, and you can hear tapes. Uh, uh, David Marler found the witness recently, um, and interviewed him. And he's you know he sticks to his story. Uh, and um, but James McDonald interviewed the grandmother, his and his mother, and Charles. Uh, so you can hear their testimony on the, you know, firsthand on what they saw about all of this, and you know, uh, you know, they they confirm all that that all this happened. This story made the papers, uh, and he was in the hospital. Now, what kills me is there are medical there were medical reports at the time. So you've got trace evidence and document documentation. Yeah. And they let this slip through their fingers because everybody was looking at Socorro at the time. This was 1964. And so I see that time and time again. Uh, I wrote a whole chapter on, uh, I call it overt contact, with you know all these cases where people are getting zapped and burned uh, by UFOs. And um, nobody bothered to collect the, the medical reports. Yeah, and put them in a file, so they're all gone. So I think that's a shame, and I think that's you know. And and again, uh, how do you explain that outside of something anomalous? Because if he was just burned, he would have just been burned, you know. Right. Yeah. And yeah, the only the the only the lasting effects were he lost some hearing, I think, in his left ear, and uh, had to wear glasses for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um. But yeah, he said no pain, which is bizarre, and the doctors didn't understand that either. Because, I mean, you could almost argue, well, maybe it was some kind of test craft and they screwed up and accidentally burned the kid, but then you would see a more normal burn pattern. Right, exactly. Exactly. That's what makes this case really strange. It, it almost yeah. seems more like plasma or something like that. Well, you know, a thing, uh, injury that comes up time and time again is uh, Cleek conjunctivitis. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, welder's burn. I'm actually a welder, and I've suffered this. It hurts like a mother. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like the tears irritate your eyes. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. Uh, but that, that comes up in case after case after case, and that came up in the Mothman uh, yes. yeah. episodes that John Keel wrote. And, and, and to me, I wonder if it's these things are giving off a form of light that we can't, we, we don't even have like maybe a uh, an idea of. Well, Kill's awesome speculation was that these things, uh, you know, if they exist in the electromagnetic spectrum, which is light, yeah, um, you know, the, the different and we we can perceive only a narrow band of this spectrum, um, you know, uh, the 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 color chart basically, yeah. And uh, Keel speculated that these things would move into our uh, realm of perception through. Uh, ultraviolet 
and then I think enter ultraviolet and exit in, infrared. infrared. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a that's a really interesting speculation on his part. And and I suspect he's at least onto something with that. Um, because the, the other thing is with a lot of photos. And it doesn't matter if it's UFOs, monsters, whatever. I think all this stuff has a similar sort of uh, source outside our, our normal perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, if you try to take pictures of something that's flooded in infrared light, it can cause cameras to not work. Mm-hmm. It can cause them oh, to yeah, be well, blurry. I mean, you could, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's interesting, too. You know, you've got report after report of people's, you know, people nowadays with uh, cameras, their batteries dying. And yeah. And then you also had the the cars dying. Uh, that's yeah. actually, uh, I, uh, I I have a fun speculation that I I, I think I, I particularly wanted to share with you. Okay. Um, I imagine a planet uh, where the uh, the uh, sentient uh, creatures on that planet have developed artificial intelligence, uh, uh, and also developed stargates and interstellar craft. Uh, you know, wormholes and portholes. Yeah. And unfortunately, they become dependent on, became dependent on uh, artificial intelligence. So um, intelligence was no longer being selected for <laughs> by evolutionary process. <laughs> uh, so they all degenerate. And I picture like uh, that could explain Bigfoot <laughs> wandering <laughs> into a, uh, and also explains why so many of these creatures seem really confused. Yeah, uh, yeah. the witnesses describe them as just you know being clumsy and confused, and so you know I, I picture these degenerate creatures you know wandering in the stargates and craft and uh, <laughs> ending up on this planet. Going, what the hell? And then all of a sudden they walk. You know the, the AI snatches them back to the planet. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's that's a good one. I like that. Uh, so we're out of time for this segment. We'll do a Patreon, but uh, tell people where they can find you, where they can find the book. Okay, I'm uh, a regular blogger for uh, Martin Willis. Uh, my written version can fi- be found at podcastufo.com uh, every week. I do an audio version of that blog, which can be found at um, uh, Martin Willis's YouTube site. Uh, Martin Willis YouTube uh, uh, podcast UFO probably get you there, and uh, my book The Flying Saucer Investigators is available in hardcover, softcover, audiobook uh, on the uh, on Amazon on the Amazon.com, <laughs> and uh, I think at uh, Flying Disc Press, which is the publisher, uh, you can get a version in German. Uh, because a uh, German publishers uh, approached uh, Flying Disc Press and asked if they, they could take some of his catalog and uh, translate it into German. So I nice. agreed, and there you go. <laughs> and I and I highly recommend the book. It's an excellent read. Well, oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you for joining me. And like I said, we'll do a Patreon segment. I want to take a moment here to thank all of my Patreons. Without you, this show wouldn't be possible. And I especially want to shout out to those pledging $10 or more. Allison Cook, Super Inframans, 36 Dingo, Chuck Shutters, Leanne Sherry, CJ, Tim, Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Christine, 
a blue second-gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Guy Quinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy and Communicable, Christopher Ernst, Craig Cicernos, Craig Parmenter, Crystal Ann Compton, Diane B., Duffy Doubter, Edu Camahort, MTK, Eric Citron, Eric Todd, J. Otto Bullet, James Lattimore, Joanna Rojas, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L., Laser Printer Jam, Linz Jackson K., Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Jim and Sophie, Mark Bowley, Mark Brady, Matt in Delaware, Patricia W., Paul Jeffries, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Stone Wilderness, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Stephen D., and Amber Hall. Thank you all so very, very much. Uh, so the uh, song you sent, let's, let's intro that. As is my want with recording, I, uh, uh, I, I love synthesizers, and uh, uh, I am also a guitar player, uh, but I, um, I took it upon my, I, I thought I'd be really cool to do an album uh, using nothing but paranormal uh, audio uh, samples. Um, uh, I, n- I maybe got four songs out of it before I <laughs> moved on. I, I tend to do that with uh, recording, uh, kind of. Oh, you know, I, let's move on to something else before I have enough material to actually put out an album. Uh, but this uh, recording was uh, t- takes uh, recordings from the a chase uh, from the uh, recorded from the tower at Edwards Air Force Base, uh, and then also has samples from the Trumbull County, Ohio uh, police chase uh, taken from the nine one one. Uh, center, uh, which also, uh, you know, dispatched, um, and it was all recorded. So you have the calls from the witnesses seeing, you know, weird things, uh, and you also have uh, the interaction between the police officers actually chasing this. Uh, I think it was three objects. Right. Uh, uh, so I, I took those, and uh, I have a friend playing bass, and I'm playing... Uh, two uh, Korg Electribes, one's uh, a drum machine and one's uh, uh, they're um, modeled uh, analog. uh, It's modeled analog, as in it's digital, but it's modeled analog. Uh, So uh, so both the drum machine and uh, a synth, the synth has uh, two voices. Um, And uh, what's uh, the drum machine has a... uh, a delay knob, uh, which I got adept at um, uh, using to uh, make break beats. Mm. Um, and uh, so I'm playing, and I, I'm playing the uh, uh, the modeled analog synth. Uh, it, it's got buttons, uh, which is about one octave of a keyboard. So I'm playing that and twisting knobs on that and triggering, triggering the samples while this guy is playing bass, uh, all live to two track. Uh, nice. So that's what this tune and, is. And what is the name of the like band or? Oh, I I I tried to put out a. Uh, uh, I did actually. <laughs> I did put this out years ago. Uh, 
it's probably not available but yeah I, I i thought it would be a cool idea to make it look like i was a bunch of bands <laughs> ah, okay. uh, so i think i think i called this uh, this band the shadow men um nice. <laughs> and is there a title for the track uh i think it's called uh something over here okay awesome thank you
been listening to where did the road go this show is made possible in part from our patreons and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange you can always find everything where did the road go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com and thank you so much for your support <laughs>